We are jumping back into our series on Matthew, from Matthew's Gospel. So if you could open your Bibles to Matthew 22, verse 15 to 22 is our text for this morning. And it's amazing that we arrive at this text, given what's happening in our nation, as you will see. And I didn't even plan it. I'm not that good. Let me read Matthew 22, verse 15 from the ESV version. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we ask that you may bless the reading and preaching of your word this morning in our midst. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Next Saturday marks the next federal election. And this setting here, Iron Street Chapel, 27 Iron Street, will be transformed from a place of worship to a place of democracy. Uh, We will pack down the chairs and pack down the sound equipment at the end of this service. And next week, hundreds, if not thousands of people will stream into this building and cast their vote as members of our, you know, Representation, what is it, representational democracy uh, that we have here, constitutional monarchy we have in Australia uh, that we're blessed to be a part of. And this place will hopefully bring lots of people from our community into our space for the first time. Uh, the Sam and Phoebe Yap have organised a barbecue to be happening, so if you'd like to help with that, you can speak to them. And people will have democracy and a sausage sizzle, two good things going together. But it begs the question for you and I, um, as we, we gather here, what is the relationship between God and government? What's the relationship between God and government? You might wonder, why would we even vote here? This is a church, a place of worship. Is it a bit wrong to be voting inside of a church? What's the relationship between the church and the state? What's the relationship between us as Christians, citizens of heaven, and us as Christians, citizens of Australia? Though not all of us are citizens of Australia, but you get my point. The temptation for most of us is, as always, is to fall off on either side of the spectrum when it comes to this question, God and government. On one side, the problem can be to be far too political as Christians and even as a church. We can tie ourselves to one party as the party, the saving party. If only this party or this member gets voted in, the world will go to hell. 
If only this party or this is the only group that's righteous or the only one that anyone should ever support. We can manipulate, we can fund, we can base our life, our hope and our identity on what happens in the political realm. It can, in fact, become an idol for some. More excited, more infatuated, more hope, more confidence in what happens in the political realm than in the spiritual. But the other temptation, which I think is probably far more the temptation for us in Sovereign Grace Church Parramatta, with the relationship between God and government, is we see them as far too separate. Nah, the state, it's got nothing really to do with us. It's just the world, it's secular. Let the world sort itself out. It's full of sin, it's full of corruption. The church shouldn't have anything to do with it. We as Christians, just we shouldn't be imposing ourselves on society. We should just you know, do our thing in the church and let the world to themselves. I wonder if you fall on either side of those temptations. So it's timely this week that we think, well, what is the right relationship of a Christian to the state, the God to the government, the church and the state? And we find ourselves here at this seminal text, this text which has transformed the way societies think about government and religion for the past two millennia. A very short answer from Jesus has been pregnant with meaning and speculation and philosophy and has changed uh, the world as we know it. So let's jump in today and see what Jesus has to say about the relationship between God and government. And very simply, I want to just explain the story and then I want to get into a bit more detail and apply it to our lives and see what does this actually look like? Because it's not something we speak about a whole lot. So let's jump in and we'll, our first point, point number one, the story, very creative. Uh, And we're going to, we're just going to enter in and join into this scene. So let me read verse 15 to 16 again in Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. So let's set the scene. Where are we? Well, we're in the temple. Uh, When are we? Well, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. He's heading towards the cross. He came in on a donkey. The crowd shouted praise and Hosanna, laid their cloaks before him. He surveys the scene, goes home, comes back the next day and clears out the temple. Turns over the tables turns out the money lenders and the pigeon sellers and says, my house should be called a house of prayer. The religious leaders of the temple come together and say, well, by what authority do you have to do this? You know, if someone just comes in and starts knocking our chairs over next week and you can't do this, well, who who said, you know, what position do you have? And Jesus doesn't answer their question. And he says, well, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. Uh, You know, was John the Baptist from God or from man? He puts them in a dilemma. They chicken out, they don't answer because the crowds love John the Baptist. They didn't like him because John the Baptist wanted them to repent. And so they say, well, we don't know. And so Jesus says, well, I won't answer you. But then he goes on for three parables and tells three stories of how basically excoriating the religious leaders of the time and saying, you're under judgment of God. Uh, you, You are being cast out because you've rejected me and you've rejected by rejecting me, you've rejected God himself. 
That makes them even angrier. They want to arrest Jesus. And so that's where we find ourselves today. The, the Herodians, the Pharisees, and we'll see later the Sadducees, they come along and they're like, we're all enemies, but we're going to get rid of this guy because he's our common enemy. Uh, and so they're uh, co-belligerents, as you could say. And they form an unholy alliance. And that's the who of our story today. We have the Pharisees. They're the strict religious Jews who think that by adherence to the law, by cleansing the people of Israel, God will once again return, give them back their land and give them security and peace and bring along the Messiah. That's the Pharisees. The Herodians, who they partner up with in this question, are those who are actually okay with King Herod, who was a half-Jew, being in charge of the temple, being in charge of Israel at the time. And they'd kind of sidled up to Herod. And so they were trying to go for more of the you know, political influence. They were far, you know, probably way down that end. The Pharisees were probably down the other end, separation and get out Rome and we'll just do our thing. We've got to be pure Israel. And they come together. What's their purpose? Well, they want to entangle him in, in his words. Literally, the, the, the expression in the Greek means uh, to trap him, like you would set a trap for the birds. And we know that as they flatter him, that this isn't genuine flattery. Oh, no, you can't have genuine flattery. You know what I mean? This isn't a genuine commendation. They're like, oh, Jesus, you're so true and you don't fear anyone. This is empty, even though ironically, it's very true. So where are we? We're in the temple. Who? We've got the Herodians and the Pharisees, but it's not even them. They've just sent their little sidekicks along, the disciples. Their purpose is to trap him. And why do they want to trap him? Well, the Herodians fear political instability. Jesus has got a crowd. It's Passover. There's thousands, tens of thousands of people who are in religious fervor. If they start to proclaim Jesus as Messiah, there might even be an overthrow of the government in that time. They'd lived through various other uprisings that had led to mass slaughter, and they didn't want to see it happen again. They didn't want to lose their position of power. The Pharisees most likely were scared of Jesus and losing their own religious influence over the people. And so they want to get rid of him. Maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus here this morning uh, and you might have fears when it comes to following Jesus too. The Herodians should have followed Jesus. The Pharisees should have followed Jesus. But they were afraid of what it meant to have Jesus as their Lord. To follow him would mean giving up their position, giving up their influence, giving up their security, their comfort, and admitting that he was right. And actually, they would have to submit and humble themselves to him. Maybe you have fears about following Jesus this morning. Well, then they come with their question, verse 17. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So here's the trap. And why, you know, why this question? Why is this such a trap? And we, you know, we might not like paying taxes, but we don't often have a moral dilemma about paying our taxes. We don't think it's sinful to pay taxes. So why is this such a trap? Why isn't it just an easy answer? Well, in Jesus' day, it was a hot topic issue. It'd be like discussing discussing COVID and vaccine mandates and things like that today. Uh, that would be a similar sort of dilemma that you're trying to put someone in. Because the tax that they're talking about was a specific one. It's called the poll tax or the head tax. And it was a tax that was paid as a tribute to Caesar 
for being your dictator oppressor. So if you were a non-citizen, you had to pay a tax to Caesar for the privilege of having Caesar as your Caesar, even though you didn't want him. Uh, and it was every male above a certain age, every female above a certain age who was on the census had to pay that tax. You might remember that when Jesus was born, um, Joseph and Mary had to travel down to Bethlehem to take part in a census. Uh, that census, that data is used to then calculate the taxing. Uh, and you do a census because the more people you have on the census, the more people you can demand the tax from. And so it's a revenue raising thing. And so for the Israelites, they live in their land that God promised them through Abraham that should be theirs. They've currently got a Roman ruler over the top of them who's then saying, for the right for me to be your dictator lord, you have to pay me a denarius, a day's um, worth of labouring wages um, every year. And so it puts Jesus in this difficult position because obviously the crowds don't like paying this tax. The, you know, the general population don't want to pay the tax. And so if Jesus says, yeah, pay your tax to Caesar, he's going to look like he's not the Messiah. Because the Messiah, the leader, is meant to come and liberate them from Roman oppression, not further subjugate them and demand that they give their money away, their hard-earned peasant subsistence economy money. But if he says, no, you don't have to pay the tax to Caesar, well, then he's an insurrectionist. He's, he's basically a terrorist. And he could be thrown in prison. He could be put to death. And eventually, that's why he is put to death. Um, as someone who claimed to be the king of the Jews in opposition to Caesar. And so they think, I reckon they were probably pretty smug. They're like, we have got the question that will trap Jesus. Uh, this is going to be great. He can't, he can't win here. So how will Jesus, the one who actually doesn't fear man, how will he answer? It's brilliant, isn't it? Let's look at verse 18 to 19. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. He calls their bluff. He says, You're putting this on. You don't actually want to know my answer. But for once, Jesus actually answers the question. He often doesn't answer, but for once he actually does answer the question. And I think in part he potentially answers it because it, it puts them in a bad position as well. Because they're the ones that are saying, oh, you know, uh, well, this money, that this denarius coin was, you know, considered profane, that you shouldn't even have it in the temple because it's got the image of Caesar on it. So he's like, oh, who's got, who's got a denarius? And then they fish out from their coins, like, oh, I've got one. And so Jesus is sort of like, hmm, Interesting. And he builds the tension. You can imagine the anticipation of the crowd. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? Someone comes from the back, trottles up, brings up their denarius. Jesus holds it up to the crowds and says in verse 20, whose likeness and inscription is this? Calls upon you know, the crowd and the congregation to participate. Whose image is on the coin? Well, Caesar's. On the, on the coin, there was like a picture of Caesar's head and, you know, that kind of Roman leaf crown thing around it. And in, in Latin, it said this, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, the son of the divine Augustus. So on this coin is a picture of their oppressing Lord and his self-designation that he's the son of God. 
the Son of God holds a coin of a rival Son of God in the temple. They all know it's Caesar's coin. So what will he do? It's a profane image. You think Jews, the first command is, you shall have no other gods before me. Second command, you shall not make any image of any likeness of anything that, you know, no idols. Breaking the first two commandments, the, the, the coin is already. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? How's he going to get through it? Well, let's continue reading as we know the answer. He says to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This is a genuine drop-the-mic moment. Uh, this is, he, uh, he has really come up with an incredible answer that they weren't expecting and that they can't refute. They gave him an either-or. It's either Caesar or God. But Jesus gives them a both-and. They wanted to pin him on the horns of a dilemma. You know, imagine two big bull horns. You either spike on one or spiked on the other side. They wanted him to fall off the cliff, either on the left or the right. But instead, Jesus gives a both-and. Did you see what he did? He both affirms and denies Caesar at the same time. As he holds up the coin that bears Caesar's image and his claim to divinity, he affirms Caesar's right to rule and govern. He affirms that Caesar is an appointed ruler. And therefore, it's his coin. It's his land. It's his empire. He provides the aqueducts, the roads, the pollution, everything for you. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. If you're going to live in Caesar's world, you give to Caesar. But he denies the fundamental claim of Caesar that Caesar is Lord. Because he then takes, okay, render the things that are Caesar's, a coin, but to God the things that are God's. He denies Caesar's claim to divinity and establishes that, no, Caesar is not God or the son of a God. God, the creator of heaven and earth, is God, and therefore give to him what he is owed. They were stuck on either side. It's either God or government. It's either Caesar you know, or Yahweh. And today we can be tempted in the same way. It's either left or right wing. It's either Labour or Liberal, Progressive or Conservative, Dem Democratic, Republican, ScoMo or Albo. But Jesus here forces us into neither extreme because of the remarkable statement. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Pay your tax, worship your God. Drop the mic and walk away. So in this story, we see that Jesus masterfully distinguishes between civil and divine authority. Demonstrates his own authority, silences his critics and resolves the dilemma. And we move on and we're going to see there's three more questions that happen and we're going to do those over subsequent weeks. But what meaning does this tale, and I shouldn't say tale, it's not a tale, you know what I mean, this story have for us today? What are, you know, what, we don't have Caesar, at least not that I know of, not yet. Um, we don't have a situation where we have this kind of attack. So is this just like, oh, cool, Jesus did that, he succeeded, he's smart, move on. 
Well, I'm going to move now to point number two, the application. And I want us to trace out in a bit of detail what it means for us as 21st century Christians living in Australia to take the principles of this command and apply it to our lives. What is your obligation to God and government? One commentator, RVG Tasker, it's quite the name, said this, this all-important pronouncement of Jesus shows that he distinguished without dividing the secular and the sacred. That he united without unifying the two spheres in which his disciples have to live. They are citizens of two cities, the earthly and the heavenly, and they have duties to discharge in both. This passage is really helpful, and the rest of the New Testament has some really helpful things for us to say about how we actually live in this world that you, you know, brings together sacred and secular. As Christians, we're, we're involved in everything. We're citizens of heaven and citizens here of earth. And so what does that look like? Well, I'm going to give us six things. So buckle up um, and get your notes ready. And I, I want to give a lot of attention to this because it's not something we speak about all the time, but it's very important. So how do we... How do we live? Well, we give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Firstly, by paying our taxes. It's the most simple, direct and necessary application of the text that has been part of the Christian witness and story for the past two millennia. But it mustn't be skipped. Are you giving to Caesar what is Caesar's? Are you giving to the federal government, local government, and by implication, state government of Australia or wherever you are due to pay taxes to? Are you actually paying your taxes? Are you paying them in full without cheating? It's not an option here. It is a command from our Lord. Give to Caesars what is Caesars. Sure, you're all law-abiding citizens. But if I were to inform you today that after the service, actually the ABS is here, uh, or the ATO rather, um, and they're going to be doing an audit of everyone in our church. Checking all your income, all your expenses, and all your tax returns. Would you break out in a sweat? Now, I think Jesus is very simple, but it's very important that we do obey this command that we find ourselves a non-dodgy tax agent that doesn't turn a blind eye, that we declare all of our declarable income, that we only lodge expenses that we actually made. Because we remember, we may not like being taxed. We don't have to like, woo, tax time, can't wait to get taxed. You know, that's not what Jesus is saying here. But he is calling us to give where our tax is owed. It's our duty. Our tax money is used in our country, you know, at times probably wasted, at times really used well. But we're the beneficiaries of our tax. We live with quite a high standard of living across the board. Our health system, education system, our defence, transport, roads, services, aged care, immigration, policing, Emergency services, anti-corruption bodies, 
sewage and bins, all those things, rates and taxes, they all, that's where they, they don't just magically appear and they're not divine rights. We don't have any right to have someone come and collect our bins and we don't have any right to a flushing toilet. It comes because we rented a Caesar. What is Caesar's? Consider this too. By not paying your tax properly, you are in effect stealing from the government. If the government has a legitimate claim on your income, to withhold it or to pay less than you ought is to steal, is it not? Furthermore, we have many people in this room who are employed by the government. To withhold your tax money, even if it's you know, in the grand scheme of the federal budget and et cetera, et cetera, it's very minimal how much. But in, if you draw out the implication, in a sense, by withholding our tax and not paying it fully, we're actually stealing from each other too. People in this room derive their living and their wages upon the income that is taxed from the rest of us. Whether how indirectly it is, it still works out like that. So, very simply, the first way we give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God's what is God's in duty to our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, we pay our taxes. We pay our rates. We pay it in full. Secondly, we give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to, God's, to God what is God's by submitting to Caesar, by submitting to authorities. Jesus here does lay down a foundation that the rest of the New Testament builds upon in multiple different occasions, supporting the right for civil government, even ungodly, blasphemous, immoral and profane civil government, to rule and govern over Christians. And the call comprehensively across the New Testament for each one of us is to be upright model citizens in submission and subjection to the governing authorities. Romans 13, verse 1 and 2, and I'll read verse 7 as well. This is Paul writing to Christians who live in Rome where Caesar lives. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Pay to all who is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honour to whom honour is owned. Elsewhere in those verses in between that I didn't read, it says that the government is a minister sent by God to serve its people. Now, obviously, governments don't do that perfectly. They don't serve as they ought to at all times. But Paul wasn't unaware of corruption in government when he said that government ministers, uh, government figures, even ones that call themselves God, are ministers ordained by God. And so we ought to be subject to them as much as we possibly can. Christians ought to be upright and model citizens. That's what Paul is saying. But what do we do when laws are inconvenient or expensive? Well, they inflict suffering or disruption upon our lives. Surely then we're like, yeah, Caesar's Lord, but like, this is annoying. I don't have to like, you know, do this. I can just do what I, I want. I'm a Christian. God's my Lord. Well, 
As I was studying this week, I came across an example from R.C. Sproul, a late theologian who, who loves, when he talks about this subject, to bring up the story of Joseph and Mary, as I mentioned earlier. Let me read. It wasn't convenient for Joseph and his wife to undergo an arduous journey to Bethlehem because the emperor wants to take a census so he could increase his taxes on the Jews. Yet Joseph risked his, the life of his wife and of their promised child to obey the civil magistrate. Here we have a heroic example of obedience to the civil magistrate. Our emotions say they would have been justified to stay in Nazareth. But God had not commanded Joseph and Mary to stay there. God doesn't command us to be happy or to be wealthy. If we don't like the income tax structure and think the government is unjust, that is no excuse for us to disobey even though it may inconvenience us and cause us discomfort. So when you think about disobeying the law, think of Joseph and Mary traveling hundreds of kilometers across desert landscape, pregnant, to submit to Caesar, who wants to tax them more. It's a great example, and that's how the Lord, our Savior, was born in Bethlehem, to fulfill the prophecy, to bring salvation into the world. But is there ever a time to disobey? Yes, of course. Um, R.C. Sproul again says this, the answer is easy to articulate but difficult to apply to real-life situations as we experienced during the past two years. The principle is this, whenever any authority, civil magistrate, parent, employer, father in the home, husband in the marriage, commands us to do what God forbids or forbids us to do what God commands, we not only may disobey, but we must disobey. I'll read that second sentence again. Whenever any authority commands us to do what God forbids, i.e. steal, lie, cheat, murder, or forbids us to do what God commands, make disciples, worship Christ, serve others, we may not only disobey, but we must disobey. Think of Shifra and Pua, the Hebrew midwives who wouldn't send the babies into the Nile. They even lied to Pharaoh and they're praised and justified. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego would not bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Or Peter and the apostles after Jesus' resurrection, they were commanded by the ruling authorities in Jerusalem to stop preaching the name of Jesus. They did not submit to them. Instead, they said, we must obey God rather than man. Now, finding that line is difficult. We struggle, wrestle through that. Do we disobey the government and continue to meet when they say there's a pandemic and you can't gather? Do we disobey the government when we, you know, vaccine mandates or masks? All those things, they're questions we've had to think about. We're not going to talk about it now, but there is a line somewhere. But like R.C. Sproul said, it's difficult to articulate. That's why we've got to do it in community. So, we give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's by submitting to authorities up until that line. And then you mustn't. So, it gets really complicated, but anyway. Thirdly, we must give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's by praying for authorities. By praying for authorities. Look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So, we... We pay our taxes, we submit to them. We go beyond that, though. We seek their spiritual good. First of all, then, I urge that 
supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour who desires all people to be saved to come to the knowledge of truth. How's your prayer for our local, state, federal and global leaders? We're commanded to do it. It's for our good that we pray for them, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives. The ideal is that there is a separation between church and state, that the state doesn't tell us how to worship God. It doesn't enforce worship upon us and leaves us be. Let's just live peaceable and quiet lives. That's what we want, so we should pray for it. Pray for their well-being. Pray for the future prime minister of our country, whoever that may be, your future federal member. Pray for them earnestly. Make supplications for them, all thanksgivings for them. That leads us to number four. So we pay our taxes, we submit, we pray. We also give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's by honouring authorities. Now that is sinful in Australia. You shall not respect your leaders. That's the number one command in Australian political culture. You shall not ever take them seriously and you shall deride them and you shall pay them out. And even if they're good, you you should not like them. Even if you respect them, you shouldn't make that public. But what did Paul say? Romans 13, 7. Respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2 said, Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. I was convicted by this this week. It's so easy and so cheap and fun to make fun of the political leaders and they give so much material. But we must. We must hold our tongues and we must obey this command. God commands us to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and what is owed to Caesar is honour. Scott Morrison, as the Prime Minister of our Federation of States, is owed honour. And whoever is elected as your federal representative and your senators and maybe whoever is the new prime minister if there's a change of hands they're owed honor it means that certain youtube channels might be difficult to watch Um, one that i particularly like was very inappropriate i stopped watching because it was very hard for me to honor my emperor (laughs) and watch this youtube channel Uh, and so you got to guard your heart in this and i think as a church we need to be very careful and feel free to pull each other up on this as well Um, we have a duty to do this number five and this is an interesting one that i think is worth thinking about We give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's by partnering with the authorities. William Barclay in his commentary says this, because the Christian is a man of honour, and you could sub in the female pronouns, he must be a responsible citizen. Failure in good citizenship is also a failure in Christian duty. Untold troubles can descend upon a country or industry when Christians refuse to take their part in the administration of the country and leave that administration to the selfish, self-seeking, partisan and unchristian men. 
Now, that's not a Bible verse. That's a quote from a commentary. However, I, he picks up on something that I would like us to think about. I want us as a church to be in obedience to the second great command to love your neighbour as yourself, informed and engaged citizens, active, proactive. We ought not to think that the separation of church and state means that Christians have nothing to do with what happens in the state. Separation of church and state just means it was you know, created post-reformation that the government wouldn't dictate to the churches how to worship. That's what it means. It means in America that there would be no state church, no church of America like there is Church of England. That's what separation of church and state means. It doesn't mean, well, Christians just have to shut up and you're not allowed to say anything. It doesn't mean the separation between God and government. It's very specific what that means. And in fact, as Mr. Barclay says, I believe that we shouldn't leave the administration, the politics, the PNC councils, the local government, all these things shouldn't be left to unbelievers who are selfish, self-seeking, partisan, and unchristian. But indeed, we should be actively involved, actively informed. We give to Caesar what is Caesar's by being a part of ruling where Caesar has given us liberty to rule. We have the benefit of being in a democracy, a representative one, but we get to be a part of so much of what happens in our land and woe betide us if we don't be a part of it and then go, well, I don't like what's happened to our country. It's like, well, what did we do to stop it happening? I feel this burden. I've got four children. I want to deliver to them a better nation than we have now. But it won't happen if we just sit back and leave the state to the state and the world to the world. So this weekend, vote. You have to or you'd be fined, but <laughs> be informed, be active. Talk with your member, find out the policies. Speak up for issues of morality. Don't think we have to be silent. How will politicians have the knowledge and the power to stand up for the unborn unless we bring it to their attention? Unless we stand against abortion and euthanasia and various social ills, how will they be able to say, well, I'm just representing my constituents. We should stop this. Unless we actually stand up and say, we should stop this. Stand for what is good and right in your business and your industry. Don't just think, oh, well, I'm not the CEO. I can't change. Don't be a part of unjust workplaces and unjust practices, cheating, stealing, lying, abusing, all these things that can happen and companies can do, don't be a part of that. Stand against it, even if it means costing you. Sign petitions. Become a politician, perhaps. First step, join the PNC if you're a parent of a school. Why would we do this? Well, out of love for neighbour. And out of our duty to God. We give to Caesar what is Caesar's, finally, and to God what is God's by living all of our life for our ultimate authority. You know when Jesus said, whose likeness and inscription is this, and he holds up and there's a picture of Caesar's head, the image of Caesar in the Greek, it literally says icon of Caesar. That same word in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament in Genesis is the word image, the word that's used to describe who we are. We are made in the icon, the image, the inscription of God. 
And so our ultimate duty is not to the government, it's not to Caesar, it is to give to God what is God's. Well, what is God's? Well, we're his image. We're owned and bought by him. And therefore, our ultimate duty is to give all of our life to God. And subsumed under that, we give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We give to God what is God's by giving all our life to him, by submitting all of our work, all of our time, all of our civic responsibility, all of our income, even our taxes, Sundays, our mornings, our evenings, all of it, we give to God what is God's because he bought us with a price. We all have a tax debt to God through our sin and through even just the reality that we're created beings made by him. He owns us. We have a debt to God. He's our maker. He, he designed us and created us, put us in the world, and our duty to him is to live everything for him. Yet we've built up sin and rejection of him. And, and so if he was to audit our lives, we would be with one heck of a debt. But we can actually ultimately live our lives and give them to God because God first gave his life to us. He gave his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the debt that you owe to God for the life that you haven't fully rendered to him. For all the wasted minutes and hours, for all the sin, whether seen or unseen, for every part of your being that you haven't loved God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. You owe that to God. Every minute of every day that you've ever existed or ever will exist, you owe it to God and you can never pay him back for that. Yet Jesus, the one who holds that idolatrous figure, goes on to that cross to pay that debt in full for you and I. And on the cross, he purchases us back from Satan into God's heavenly kingdom and makes us citizens of heaven again. It's beautiful, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's our ultimate duty. And we can only do it if we first give our life to God. If you're not yet a Christian here this morning, you haven't fully committed your life to the Lord or you've been wandering or you don't know where you're at, the most important way you can obey this passage today and apply this scripture is to give your life to God. It's to repent and come back and make Jesus your Lord again. So friends, the election is coming and this passage is here to remind us and instruct us for our application that we are to give to God or Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's. Therefore, pay your taxes. Submit to the authorities, even when you don't want to, like I so often don't. Pray for them. Honour them. Partner with them. But most importantly, give to God 
your spiritual worship all of your life and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. I'm going to read from Revelation 4 as we pray. It reminds us that one day all nations everywhere will declare not Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is Lord. And all kings and all rulers will take off their crowns and cast them before him. Revelation 4, whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. O Lord, you are worthy of our whole life, everything we have. And so, Lord, help us to give to you what is yours, and then to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We thank you that you purchased our life back, that we had this debt and paid in full. Now, let us glorify you in our bodies this week, especially this week, O oh Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done. And Lord, we ask that in our nation that our hopes would not be placed in political parties, but our hope, the hope of our nation would be placed in your son, Jesus, our king. That people would bend the knee and declare Jesus is Lord and that we would be a part of being your ambassadors, letting them know ScoMo is not Lord, Albo is not Lord, Labor is not Lord. Liberal is not Lord. But Jesus is Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.